Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, my name's Tim. It's great to be with you today. There's an outline of where we're going on the back of the newsletter. I hope you find that helpful. Well, life is made up of making decisions. Every day you make lots of decisions, don't you? You decided whether you'd get up this morning. If so, at what time? You decided what to have for breakfast or not have breakfast. You decided what to wear. Would you wear the same clothes as yesterday or wear something clean? Uh, as you've gone through the day, you just kept making decisions. Now, if you're a Christian like me, there are some decisions that matter more than others. Because the decisions you make where you have a choice to please God or displease God, to obey his will or disobey, to do good or to do evil. And those are the choices that matter to God. Because he's called us to a life of obedience, of doing good, of serving Jesus. We've been saved to do good works. And so, as you have that conversation, when you decide whether to tell the truth or deceive, that matters to God. When your parents call you out, your decision to honour them or give lip matters to God. When, when gossip comes your way, your decision to, to seal your lips or to pass it on matters to God. They're important decisions. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to 11 we're looking at today, Moses, who's speaking, knows that they, they are not the most important decisions, that there is a crucial decision that matters more than that. He's about to give them 15 chapters of laws and decrees of commands, all sorts of details about how to please God, directions for many decisions that they make about temple visits and about where to put boundary pegs in your land and what to do with foreigners and how to treat them. But before he gets to those commands, he, uh, actually I'll go forward. Uh, in Deuteronomy 6 to 11, um, he wants to, to talk to them about the crucial decision that he wants to put before them. Because they need to choose the direction of their lives, the commitments of their heart, before he gives them the details. Sports coaches do that sort of thing. They, they work out game plans with their team, as if you've ever been a, in a sporting team. But then they give the pep talk. And the pep talk is not about the game plan, all the details of who's going to play where and what they're going to do. The pep talk is to commit you to trying to win. Because if you haven't got that commitment, who cares about game plans? They become irrelevant, don't they? Politicians know it as well. Winston Churchill, uh, he made many plans. He worked with the, the, the leaders of the military in the Second World War, trying to work out their plans to, to stop the invading um, Nazi Germany. But it was the speeches he made that galvanised people, that, that, that gave them strength of heart that mattered the most. We shall fight them on the beaches, on the landing grounds, in the fields, in the streets. We'll fight in the hills. We'll never surrender. Sorry, I can't do him properly, but you get the idea, don't you? It was the decision of the heart. Will we fight or won't we that mattered more than the game plans? And that's what Moses is doing in these chapters. Uh, to set the scene, where is Israel? You're probably sick of this map if you've come the last three weeks. Um, but Israel has been rescued out of slavery. They're between the past of that incredible rescue and the future of entering the land. They're on the edge of the land God had promised. God, they were enslaved, working themselves to the bone, or being worked really, threatened with genocide, owned and exploited for generations. And God liberated them. 
He smashed the great army of, of Pharaoh, the greatest army in the world. He humiliated Pharaoh himself, the proudest man in the world, and brought them out to himself. And they're waiting the consummation of that liberation to possess their own land, to go into it as their home where they can rest, a land that's bountiful and beautiful, where they can live as God's people, blessed and secure, at rest, happy and peaceful. How are they to live, though, in this in-between time? I hope you can see that if you're a Christian, that's our situation too, isn't it? We've been saved from slavery to evil, from condemnation, saved from living for ourselves by Jesus in his death and resurrection. But we're still waiting the consummation for Christ to return, for our resurrection and rest. How do we live between? Well, God calls us to a life of righteousness, a a life of goodness. Jesus uh, gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. And God is calling Israel to this life of obedience to him. But before he gives the decrees and the laws, he urges them to decide, will you be obedient? He's given six chapters we're looking at today, we won't read them all, but we'll dig in here and there, of exhortations to secure that obedience to God, the direction of their life. He's saying, choose to love the Lord your God. Now, you might think that seems the wrong way round. Like, why do you get them to choose before you tell them the details, before all the fine print comes out? If you're signing a contract to buy a house, if you're taking on a job, you want to know all the fine print before you make the decision, don't you? But it's not that way in friendships, is it? In relationships. When you become a friend with someone, I presume, I hope you don't sit down with them beforehand and say, listen, you've got to tell me everything about yourself that I might ever encounter. You don't say to them, I've got to know every situation that we're going to find ourselves in in the next 20, 30 years of our friendship, otherwise I can't be friends. Now, you make the commitment before that, don't you? Because friendships are different. Relationships are different. If you ever get married, you can't predict what it's going to be like, but you make promises for good or ill, in sickness and in health, wealth and poverty. I will love and cherish you. See, that's what relationships are like. You make the commitment before you know the details. And so that's what Moses and God urge Israel to do. And the decision Moses wants them to make is put starkly in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. It was so central to Israelite life that every Jew would recite this twice a day. In the morning when they got up, before they went to bed. Hear, O Israel, it's called the Shema. Here is the Hebrew word Shema. Uh, and he, uh, he says to them, love, your, love the Lord your God, because Yahweh your God is one. It begins with this idea, this reality, that there's only one true and living God. But more than that, that this God is one. He, he, he's a unity. The other gods of the days weren't like that. There were Baals, plural. There were Ashtaroth, plural. 
the gods of the rain and the sun and fertility and prosperity. And, and so you are always trying to work out which of these do I need to please today to get what I want, pulled in different directions. But with Yahweh, there's a simplicity of life. There is only one God and he is one. And so there's no competing loyalties and demands. You don't have to juggle them, fearful that maybe you got on the wrong side of one of these gods. There's no competing loyalties to family or study or friends either if God is one. And the result of that, what he urges them to do is to love the one God with everything, with your heart and soul and strength. Love God with everything. That sounds sort of simple, doesn't it? But once you try and understand what it means in practice, it's far from simple. So ask yourself, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength today? I'm just talking about today, don't worry about yesterday, just today. And I presume your answer will go something along the lines of, but I slept for seven hours. I wasn't loving God then, was I? Well, sorry, ten hours. And then I tried to write an essay, and while I was writing the essay, my mind was focused on that. I wasn't even thinking about God at all. And while I was eating breakfast, my mind was just drifting to nowhere. No, no, I haven't loved God with all my heart and soul and strength, even for five minutes today, probably. So what is God asking of us and of Israel? Let me put it in two questions. What does he mean by love? And what does he mean with everything? What does he mean by love? We tend to think love, well, we equate it with emotional intensity. To love something is to have that overwhelming emotional warmth, the, the melting heart, the, the choking up, even the tears in the eyes, that, that feeling of being in love. And if it's not there constantly, what am I supposed to do? Does God want me to manufacture it somehow? And what about with everything? Because to love God with all my heart and soul and strength sounds like it, the undivided focus of all my attention is just God. Does that mean there's no room for loving steamed pork buns or loving history or even loving my family? Well, if you're here with us last week, you'll know that can't be what God means because the Ten Commandments, which show something of what God loves, seven of them are about loving my neighbour. They're not just all focus on God. He wants us to care about the person next to me, the other people I share this planet with. He wants me to love people because he loves people. Jesus was once asked, what's the greatest commandment? And you'd expect him to answer with one. And he starts with that, with this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. But he doesn't stop there, because that's capable of being misunderstood. So he adds to it, and a second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Why? Because God loves your neighbour. To love God is to love what God loves which includes your neighbour. So this is clearly not saying all you think about day in, 24-7, is God and God alone. No, you love what God loves, even steamed pork buns, I take it. But what does it mean to love God then? Well, sprinkled through these chapters, Moses explains loving God in all sorts of ways and all sorts of words. And probably the one that helps the most is the one that uh, comes up in Deuteronomy chapter 10. 
where he sort of asks them to make the same decision again. He says, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees I'm giving you today. See, love is still there, isn't it? But now it's a more expansive description of what love means. And when you put it all together, what does it mean? It means something like loyal obedience. It's not so much how you feel, how intense your feelings are. It's where your loyalty is. In the world that this is written in, love was the language often used in international treaties. Australia has a treaty called the ANZUS Alliance with New Zealand and the US. And it's a treaty that says, we will stick with you whatever happens. If anybody attacks us, we're together. It's that loyalty. Now, in the ancient world, they would have used the word love for that sort of loyalty. And that's what Moses is riffing off, as he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That is, don't have any loyalty to any other gods. Don't serve them or trust them or call on them. Serve and the Yahweh alone as your God. Now, my guess is that you're not tempted to worship and serve the Baals, are you? Anybody got one in their back pocket? Got one on your shelf at home? I, I presume not. What is it that we're tempted to worship and serve? What is it that we think we could trust to provide everything that life could give us? Well, Jesus puts his finger on it. It's called money, isn't it? Our culture is one where you do anything for money. Do anything to get more of it, to accumulate it. It's what we trust to give us security and life. It's sort of actually non-existent. What's money? It's bits of paper. It's figures in a, in a bank account. It's, it's sort of, but it's power. And, and we respect and love that power. Do you remember what Jesus said? You can't serve God and money. Either you love the one and hate the other or love the one and hate the other. You, you just can't do it. And it's on the same line as what Moses is saying. Love the Lord your God with all this. So you, you can't love God and money at the same time. Now notice Jesus doesn't say it's hard to do it. But you can probably get away with it. He says you can't do it. It's an impossibility to love God and money. So don't even try. So love God with all that you are doesn't mean doing nothing all day but singing you alone are my heart's desire. But it means a conscious loyalty, a commitment to trust God above all others, to obey God whatever happens. And in chapter 6 that we read, an important question is asked in verse 20. Why? In the future when your son asks you, What's the meaning of all these stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Which isn't, you know, can you interpret them? It's why on earth do we do them? Why have we got them? Why keep them? Now, if you're a Christian, I presume that question is sometimes asked of you, isn't it? Why do you behave that way? Why don't you go and get smashed like everybody else does? Why don't you move in with your girlfriend or boyfriend before you get married? I, I, I don't understand it. And we tend to say, well, oh, just, just because. Because I'm a Christian. Maybe you even ask yourself that question, why don't I? Well, that, 
that's the question that Moses is imagining your son is going to ask you one day. And look at the answer. Tell him, not, well, we're Israelites, that's just what we do. Nor, oh, well, God says we must, so we better, or else. Or, that's just the way it is. I mean, it's the law, it's, it, it's, it, it's the vibe, it's, it's my duty. Now, it's a very different answer, isn't it? Tell, him, tell them, uh, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he's promised on oath to our ancestors. Why obey? Because God saved us from slavery, from living hell. See, God didn't drop a truckload of rules to us back there in Egypt and say, listen, if you obey these, maybe I'll get around to helping you. But when they weren't obeying, he acted powerfully. He proved his love and commitment to them beyond ambiguity to make them his special possession. And they said, thanks. <laughs> We'd love to be your people, to be loyal to you and serve you. And so they gave, and God gave them the commands, how he wanted them to live. But he gave them the commands after he'd saved them. Why obey them? Because he has saved them, not in order to get God to save them. Which is true of us too, isn't it, if we're Christians? It's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. We're God's workmanship created to do good works as his saved people. Christ died for us so that we'd no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us and was raised again. He saved us from that life of, of just being curved in on ourselves, living for ourselves, enslaved by our desires, hating and being hated. What for? So we could live for ourselves again? No, he saved us from that, to live for him who died for us. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. It's God's grace that drives the call to loyalty and trust and obedience. Well, they've been dramatically saved by God. They've got the promised land ahead of them. Egypt's no longer a threat. This good land flowing with milk and honey is going to be theirs. Their loyalty is secured. What could possibly go wrong? Well, Moses is aware that lots could go wrong. And uh, scattered through these chapters is Moses' warnings and delineations of the sorts of things that could go wrong. The first one is fear. As in chapter 7, fear is the opposite of, of trusting God, of resting in God. And it's almost like Moses imagines what they're, they're thinking that will go on in their heads. You say to yourselves, these nations in, in the land, they're stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? They look into the land and they even say in chapter 9, there's Anakites there, there's giants there, and they've got spears and they've got swords. This is really scary stuff. What does Moses say? Well, Pharaoh was pretty scary, wasn't he? In fact, he was much scarier than those Anakites. You know his army, remember it? It got drowned in the Red Sea. Not one survived. God wiped them all from the face of the earth. Did you win because you were stronger? Was that the key to it? No, you did nothing. You just watched God do his thing. So who do you think's bigger? 
Who do you think stronger? Your God who wiped out the, the Pharaoh or the Anakites in the land? Get real. And so he says to them, you saw with your own eyes, verse 19, the great trials, the signs, wonders, the mighty hand, outstretched arm, which with the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Jesus didn't just defeat some guy with a big army. Jesus defeated death itself. The power of evil piled up against him to destroy him utterly, to permanently cancel him, but he came back to life again. He smashed the power of death. I've never seen anything like it. I've never even seen it in the movies. And you can create all sorts of imaginary stuff in the movies, can't you? Nobody has done what Jesus has done. But we're so easily terrified. Terrified of popular opinion and peer pressure. Terrified I might get cancer one day or Parkinson's disease. Terrified maybe that the Taliban might take over Australia and they've got guns and what will I do? You scared? Yeah. But haven't you seen Jesus? Haven't you seen what he can do to the scariest thing? He one day will raise you up victorious to a new resurrected body. Everything that this life might have thrown at you will have been completely undone. No, no need to fear. The second thing he warns them about is compromise. Chapter 7, when the Lord God brings you into the land you're entering to possess, drives out those nations, nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord God has delivered them over to you, you defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, show no mercy to them. Now that raises all sorts of ethical issues. I, I guess many of us, I presume we're disturbed by this. I'm not going to try and deal with that today. Um, we looked at it in the book of Joshua last year. Look on the CU website. You'll find a talk about this uh, from Joshua uh, 6 and 7 uh, on, the, on the website from first semester last year. But what's the reason not to go soft on them? Because they might entice you away from your loyalty to Yahweh. It's a real danger. It's a fatal danger if they compromise to have Yahweh plus these other gods. And especially he warns them about intermarriage. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters to your sons because they'll turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. Think marriage is designed by God for two people to become one. And sex and attraction and romance are all part of that, that, that unity. Two people aligning more and more. As my wife says, same bed, same dream. And the forces, though, that attract you and hold you together are powerful forces. So if you marry someone whose loyalty is different to Yahweh, to the true and living gods, to other gods, or to career and money, to leisure and pleasure, well, they will be like a magnet that will take you and, and pull you in a different direction. And if you're married to them, it's very hard to resist. It's very hard to be united with them if you're going in different directions. And God says, don't. He said it to them. He says it to us as Christians. Because even in the decision to marry them, you're already compromising your loyalty to Jesus. You've started on a slippery slope. Tragically, too often I've seen Christians fall in love with that guy or that girl who isn't Christian. And they say, well, they're not opposed to me being Christian. 
But they're not aligned either, are they? And God says, don't don't do it. Don't compromise. And you start to see here, I think, where Moses, why Moses wants to secure their loyalty to God before he gives them the commands. See, if you've already decided that you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, then you won't even consider starting a relationship with a non-Christian. But if you haven't decided, if you haven't settled that, then what do you do? Well, you keep your options open, don't you? And you meet a cute guy or a lovely girl and you don't ask the question, there's just the attraction. and You've, sort of, you've actually got to stop yourself down a track you've already started going down in order to be loyal. You play with the idea and that leads to trouble. The third difficulty is pride. He says a few times things like, don't think that God loves you because you're really lovable. He didn't choose you because you're the greatest nation on earth, the most attractive, the one he couldn't resist because you, you had the, the charm and, and the cool. No, he, he chose you despite the fact that you were nobodies. That's why he chose you. Or he thinks in chapter 9, maybe you'll think that God gave us the land because we were more righteous than other people. It was a reward for good behaviour. You know, look at us. Aren't we good? Now he says, remember Horeb. Remember what happened at Mount Sinai. You just had this incredible experience of God rescuing you. And God said to you, make no other, have no other gods, don't make any image. And within a week, what had you done? You got that golden calf. And you, so, you, know, you threw the gold into the fire, you said, it just came out in the shape of a bull. What rubbish. Now, your hearts went astray right from the beginning. Don't think you're more righteous. That's to misread history. Or a more subtle one in, here in chapter 8. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful you don't forget the Lord. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Or verse 17, you might say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Do you recognise the temptation? See, when things are difficult... When we fail, when, when we're struggling, when there are hurts that come our way, when there's opposition, we're much more aware of our need for God, aren't we? Often we're more prayerful when life is difficult. But when this is going well, when I'm passing my exams, when, I, when I've got a girlfriend, when everything is bright hope, then I tend to think, I, it's almost inevitable, I start to think, well, I deserve this, don't I? I've got this. I've studied. And what does God say? Verse 18, remember, it is God who gives the ability to produce wealth and confirms his covenant. Even your capacity to study is from God. You can't take the ultimate credit. You can't be boastful. The very gifts of God, the good gifts of God, become a snare. It's perverse, isn't it? The more God gives me, the more I forget God. But it happens so easily and so often, it shows us what our hearts are really like. I think I don't need God because I'm successful. And so there's no need to be loyal to God. And Moses says, wake up to yourselves. And how do you do that? Well, back in verse 10, he's given us a good clue. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. 
Turn the, the good experiences to thanksgiving and praise of God. And all these dangers have one thing in common. Forgetting the Lord your God. We've seen this in chapter 6 already. When the Lord God brings you into the land, uh, a land, large, flourishing cities you didn't build, houses filled with all, all kinds of things you didn't provide, wells you didn't dig, vineyards, be careful you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Careful you don't forget who you are, what God has done, what God has promised to you. Because if you forget those things, then who are you? Where are you? There'll be no sense of self, no stable identity, no anchor for your life. Or chapter 9, forgetting what happened negatively. Remember this, never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness from the day you left Egypt. That's why I think the New Testament keeps reminding us of what we were, what we were saved from. Let me just read to you a couple of passages. Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, he reminds us of what we were. Without Christ, I was lost. I, I was hopeless. My life was a complete mess. I was headed for destruction. But Jesus gave himself for me. Or to Peter, different sort of thing. Peter says, I'll always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live. See what he's saying? You know it, but I'm going to tell you again. You're bored? I'm going to tell you again. You're still bored? I'm going to tell you again. Because the worst thing that can happen for you, the most dangerous thing, is to forget I was reading a book by Rico Tice this week. And this is what he says every morning. He puts it in the form of some questions. He says, I ask myself this question. Rico, when did God choose you? He chose me before the creation of the world. He chose me in Christ to be holy and blameless. Rico, how does God feel about you? He's delighted in you because he's delighted with Jesus, his son. And you're united to Jesus by faith. You have a righteousness from God that's been given to you. You're a sinner and you are justified. Rico, say today, I thank God for the obedience of Jesus. Your identity is in Christ, whether others accept you or reject you, doesn't make you any more less valuable or accepted or loved. Rico, why is today a great day? Because today is the day that God has planned for me and if God says it's good, then it's good. Whatever God brings into my day, the things I'd have chosen, the things that I wouldn't have, he will work for my good. All your good is to become more like Jesus. See what he's doing? He's reminding himself of truths that he know are true, but things that the television and Facebook will never tell me. Are you forgetful? Do you have seniors' moments like I do? Went upstairs, what did I come for? I can't remember. Well, you can actually live life, the Christian life, as a senior. Forgetting everything that matters. Moses is a great pastor. He wants to orientate them and give them that sense of identity. And essential to that is that they make this decision he's urging them to make before he gives the commands and demands, all the details about how to live a life that pleases God. 
He wants to secure their commitment to be obedient. That bigger, crucial decision, will they obey? Will they love God above other loves? He's wise. He's saying, choose your heart direction. Then when you hear the commands of God, you've already decided that you're going to obey. It's already your default. And the same is true for us. The decision that really matters as you live today is not what time you get up. It's the decision about your heart direction. God wants to secure that relationship. He saved us to purify for himself a people that belong to him, eager to do good. Is that who you want to be? Or do you want to keep your options open? This is how Paul says it in Romans 12. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See what he's doing? Before he tells us what uh, living a life pleasing to God is going to look like, he wants to secure our heart direction, our commitment. The basis is the mercy of God, exactly the same as Moses. Remember his incredible grace to you that Paul's just spent 11 chapters outlining. But then there's action. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. It's like love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Your total person is a living sacrifice. Hold nothing back to God in his service. And that only happens if you take decisive action. You don't drift into being a sacrifice. It doesn't happen uh, by nature. You've got to climb onto the altar and say, I'm here. And if you make that decision, if you take that action, then when some, somebody holds a gun to your head and says, deny Christ, you don't have to think about what you're going to do. You don't have to pause and wonder, I wonder what I'll do in response to that. Because you've already decided you're a living sacrifice, aren't you? So if he shoots you, that's okay. You've already decided, you've already counted the cost. Or when you're afraid to speak up because you know your friends will ridicule you for your loyalty to Jesus. What will you do? Well, if you're a living sacrifice, you've decided already, haven't you? You will take whatever, whatever comes your way. If you stay single for the rest of your life, then that's okay because you've already decided you're a living sacrifice. Not because you must, but because of past and future grace, what God has done for us and what God promises us. In the light of that, how could you contemplate turning your back on him? How would you do it? Have you made that decision to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God? You see, the temptation for all of us, I think, is to say, oh, yeah, I, I sort of want to do it, but for the moment I want to keep my options open. Please don't. It's a dangerous way to live. And it's an unhelpful way to live. Don't say, well, I'll wait and see how life might work out and, and what the demands might be, and, and then in the moment I'll, I'll make my decision. Now, if Jesus isn't your Lord, guess who is? You are, if that's what you're saying. So I appeal to you today, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Stop and decide that that is what you are doing. You might have done it before. I hope you have. Well, do it again. That's what I need to do, to say today again, I'm a living sacrifice. That's what my life is, a servant of the Lord Jesus.
If you've never done it, today would be a great day to do it, wouldn't it? Because there's no other way to live, really, than as a living sacrifice to the Lord and God. Because the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. Amen.